I don't know about you, but I love having all the kids in here with us. Isn't it great? This is fun, isn't it? It gives life, lowers the average age. Some of you are pretty old out there. So the <laughs> in the first service, I, uh, I had trouble opening the sermon because uh, uh, Mark surprised me with a song up there, and it changed my whole sermon approach. Um, we sang, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And uh, 30 years ago, uh, in about two weeks from now, 30 years ago, I was with my first wife when she went to be with the Lord. And uh, it was on a Monday. And I couldn't hardly get through the opening. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a little more composed today. Um, but a couple of days before she died, we were together in the hospital. She was in her last hospital visit. And um, she wanted to sing Great Is Thy Faithfulness. It was her favorite song. And we did. And uh, yes, by the way, I had somebody ask me afterwards, did you remarry? <laughs> somebody doesn't know me. Nancy's not here. She was in the first service. But yes, I did. God blessed me with a second marriage. But uh, Judy and I, we sang Great Is Thy Faithfulness together. And then she asked me, um, what do you think it will be like um, to die? How, how do you answer that question? I wasn't very old then. And um, really had to reflect on it a little bit. The only thing I could think of was what Paul said in the Corinthian epistles, that absent from the body, present with the Lord. And um, so I said, I, I think what will happen is when that time comes, little did I know it was only two days later, that you'll, you'll be in a coma. The doctors will make sure you're in a coma so you're not hurting. And um, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jesus will appear, and he'll just smile and say, come on, Judy, it's time to go. And you'll sit up on the side of your bed, and you'll walk away, and I will see that. And uh, two days later, when her heart stopped, I just whispered goodbye. And that's how I pictured her leaving. And to, be, to see her again someday. I didn't realize it at the time, because I uh, hadn't had much life behind me to reflect on, but what we were doing was we were preparing her to depart, preparing her to go be with the Lord. That's what we were doing. I, I didn't realize that's what I was doing, but she was asking me questions. There were a bunch that she asked during that time. And um, I had the privilege of saying goodbye to her and being with her. And then God blessed me after that with uh, Nancy, and I hope to never say goodbye again. <laughs> I told Nancy I got the short end of the deal on the first go-around, so I get to die first, second deal around. <laughs> but the reality is we were, we were preparing for something. And the Bible, this wonderful book, which is filled with such complexity and stories that make me scratch my head. I'm sure they make you scratch your head. Um, it's all about preparation. It's, it's, in fact, if I could articulate the Bible, kind of one idea, God is preparing us for something. We're not made for this world of brokenness. That's not what we're created for. We're not created for death. We're not created for cancer. We're not created to lose jobs. We're not created for miscarriages. We're not created for failed marriages. We're not created for any of this. And, uh, and it's very difficult for us to live life well with all of the brokenness that we experience and we live in the midst of. And so the Bible is really God's way of preparing us for a future that is delightful and wonderful, but he's also preparing us for how to live life in today's world. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians that uh, you have experienced tribulation so that you can bring sorrow, you can express sorrow to others. You can encourage them. And that's, that's what it's like. We've talked about the fact that God redeemed us so that we can be redemptive in the lives of those around us. And this, the Bible is helping us navigate this very complex, difficult, challenging, and often painful world to make sense of it. Preparation. That's what we're talking about today, preparation. Last week, we introduced the idea that uh, Advent starts in the first Sunday of Advent. Today is the second Sunday of Advent. And we, um, we use the word anticipation. Remember that? Anticipation. That's the word you're going to hear us use all the way through this, this series until we get to Christmas. Anticipation. Just like your children look forward to Christmas morning. Well, by the way, I do too, for that matter. Just to be honest with you. It's just a great time. It's nothing just like all of our family traditions. We wake up and, and we start all the things that happen. And it's so fun. I've learned over the years to look forward to Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve is going to be a delightful time. We're going to enjoy worshiping together and remembering Emmanuel, God with us. We'll come back to that. Anticipation. How do you anticipate? How do you prepare your family and yourself to anticipate? What do you do? What do you look forward to? Anticipation. That's what this is all about. Today we're going to look at Zechariah's prophecy. You heard it read in Luke chapter 1. He was the father of John the Baptist. But let me set the background for you. If you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, and perhaps you have a Bible in the pew or a, a tablet or a smartphone, uh, I know they all have them now. I have a whole bunch on mine. I even have Greek and Hebrew on mine. Do you guys have that on yours? You don't? Well, we should talk. Luke chapter 1, verse 14, or verse 11, excuse me. Zechariah has gone into the temple, and he is, uh, he's doing his priestly duties while he's inside the temple. And this is what happens. While he's in the temple, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, verse 11, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. Now, I've not had the privilege of seeing an angel, but I suspect that this would be my reaction, uh, at least not that I know of. But if I saw an angel, it'd probably terrify me. And that's what happened to him. He was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Aren't those good words? Your prayer has been heard. You can always have confidence that God hears you. Always. He doesn't always answer, but he always hears very well. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, wow, even before he is born. That's a special child, even before he is born. Many of the people of Israel he will bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit of pow and power of Elijah, to return the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That was the message from the angel. And then Zechariah, perhaps he should have said, wow, this is amazing. But he said, uh, how's that going to happen? I think he's not sure he believes it. And so the angel said, well, here's the sign. 
You can't speak. You're mute. You can't speak until he's born. That way you'll know that what we're saying is the truth. That the Almighty God is speaking the truth. He comes out of the temple and he's all animated. People know that something happened. They can't figure out what it is because he can't talk anymore. So he manages to explain to them. He writes down what happened. and So she's pregnant and goes on and gives birth to John. And then at the birth, they said, what are you going to name him? He still can't speak. So Elizabeth says, John. And the people said, John? You don't have any relatives named John? And so he grabs the tablet and writes down his name is John. And then his mouth, his lips are loosened. And he can speak again. And they are all astonished at what happened. That's the background to Zechariah's prophecy that we're going to look at today. Preparing the way. This whole Advent season is designed to help you prepare the way. That's why we do it as a church. That's why the church came up with it. Advent is a time of celebrating God with us. Emmanuel. Jesus Christ with us. Emmanuel. Easter is a time of celebrating Lent. The work of Christ on the cross. God's work to bring about redemption, atonement, forgiveness. And the rest of the year is focused on the life of Christ. Hebrews argues that the life of Christ is what qualified him to be our high priest. So the life of Christ is just as important as the birth and the death. So we have all the different parts of Christ's life. We celebrate all year long, different ways. So you've been with us, many of you, on this journey. So this is Advent. This is celebrating the presence of God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus himself here. That's what Christmas is all about. And so we've designed this four weeks to help you prepare as a congregation for the coming of the Lord. And that's why we're doing it. So now let's take a closer look at this um, prophecy because it's pretty amazing, actually, the things that he says in here. Last week, I said, mentioned we noted that... Um, we celebrated Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us, Matthew 1. Well, the same thing is, is repeated right here in verse 68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people. He has come to his people. This alone is cause of great celebration. God has broke into our world. He has come. Jesus is here. Christmas Eve, we will be together. And we will celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. And when you wake up on Christmas morning, I just want you to remember, God broke into our world. He became one of us. Zechariah says, he has come to his people. God has. God has come to his people and he has redeemed them. What a fabulous thing to start with. If God had never come, We would have never been redeemed. And all, all that means is that God is repairing all that's broken. He is making beautiful what has become ugly. And by the way, it's not just you, it's all of creation. That's his desire, is to repair this world to help us. To make beautiful what is, bro uh, what is ugly to make repaired what is broken. That's what redemption is. It does include what happens to you when you turn to Jesus at eternal life, with eternal life, but it's far bigger than that. God is interested in redeeming your whole life, making sense of it. One of the exercises that we did as a staff was we each told our story, and I asked them to uh, write down kind of their story. They could share whatever they wanted. It was up to them. 
And I'd encourage you to do this and then to go back and look at that story and overlay it with who God is. Put a theological overlay on it. By the way, theology is a good term. Don't think it's a bad term. Okay, Theology is a study of God. If we have a problem with making theology boring, it's my fault problem, not yours. Okay, And it's certainly not God's. Theology is exciting. So take your story and go back and say, where was God present at each of those steps? And you'll begin to make sense out of things that you hadn't seen before, things in your past. So God has come, visited his people, and he's redeemed them. John's role in preparing the people for the coming Messiah involves forgiveness and redemption. We'll see both those words. But here's the surprise. It doesn't involve military revolt. Rebellion. That's a surprise because in all of the confusion in the first century about what this Messiah or Messiahs were going to be like, one of the things they all believed is that he would come and break the oppression of the Roman, uh, the Roman government. Israel was an occupied land, occupied by the Romans, and they were not pleasant taskmasters. So the Messiah would come and break this iron, this grip that uh, Rome had. I believe one day he will do that, but it didn't happen here. So Jesus uh, surprised them by not doing that, and John surprised them by not preaching that. And Zechariah surprised them before it ever even started by saying, He's coming to bring redemption and forgiveness. We'll come back to that in just a second. Well, similarly, as you get into this, the Messiah's role is not military. It's not a military revolt. But instead, if you look in verse 79, he came to guide our feet into the path of peace. It's a nonviolent revolution. It's nonviolent. It's an amazing story how God could pull this off, and yet he did. He uses two metaphors to help us grasp it. One is in verse 69, the horn of salvation, and the other one is in verse 78, the rising sun which comes to us from heaven. Two different metaphors to capture two different ideas about this Messiah. And John is the one that's going to preach this and proclaim it and prepare the hearts of the nation. Let's talk about the horn of salvation for just a moment. One is the horn of salvation is a reference to the Messiah's kingship, to the kingship of Jesus. That's what the horn of salvation refers to in Scripture. It's about his kingship. The king is coming. But then look what he says here. He has raised up, verse 69, a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He said this through the holy prophets of long ago. So this is a fulfillment of the promise given to David and the prophets. Isaiah 7, I'm sorry, uh, uh, 2 Samuel 7, as well as all the prophets when you go through there. Then he says, 70, 71, salvation from our enemies from the hand of all who hate us, um, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. So this is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. And we'll circle back in just a minute and help you understand why that's the case. But we are being, uh, we're being rescued the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies. So he's presented as a covenant God in verse 72. He's a God who keeps his promises. That's what that means. You can have confidence that he will keep his promises. It's also he's fulfilling the oath he swore to our father Abraham. That's the example of that. He fulfills his promises. And then he rescues us from the hand of our enemies. We've talked several times that the whole idea of salvation 
Uh, it's very easy for us to lock in on eternal life. That's just a tiny part of this. Think of salvation, the salvation of the one true living God, as this great rescue attempt. Not attempt, successful operation. It's a great rescue operation. He has come and done what needed to be done to rescue us. And that's the word that's used here in 74, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies. By the way, who's our enemy? Ephesians 6. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Who's our true enemy? Satan. That's right. So we are being rescued. But then he goes on, uh, says, And to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. We get to live out this concept of holiness and righteousness before him. These are two terms that occur all throughout the Bible. They occur in Deuteronomy at the giving of the law and other places. Holiness and righteousness. They're fabulous terms. We throw them around all over the place in the church and have no idea what they mean. That's often what happens. And if you were to stop and I were to say, write down what holiness means and what righteousness means, it'd be a difficult thing to do. So let's take just a moment and explore these two concepts. Holiness is a very unique and wonderful term. The Bible says only God is holy. Only God is holy. It's very clear. I'm not holy. At least I don't feel like I'm holy. And yet Hebrews 10, 10, Hebrews 10, 10 says, For by the will of God you have been declared holy once for all time. God has given you a precious gift, his holiness. It's one of his attributes that define who he is, but he's given it to you. And he has decided that you are holy. And you're holy, and you're holy, and you're holy, and you're holy, and you're holy. Not because you've done anything good or right. Remember, only God is holy. You couldn't earn this if you tried. There's not a single thing you could do to earn holiness. So God had to give it to you as a gift. So what does holiness mean? Well, you learned as a child in Sunday school, for those of you that were raised in church, um, set apart for a special purpose. Remember that? That term? That, that kind of that definition? What it means is you are distinctly different than the world around you. God is distinctly different from us, isn't he? So when he says that we are holy, he just said, you are distinctly different than the world around you. Not better, not worse, just different. You have a different purpose. That's what holiness means. And what is that purpose? It's to reflect his glory. By the way you live your lives and by the way you engage in his word and by the way you relate to each other, you reflect his glory. So you have been set apart, but maybe you just think of it this way. You have been made different. You have been given a different purpose than your neighbor who doesn't yet know the Lord. And that is to reflect his glory. That's how you do it. How about righteousness? Let's talk about that term for a moment. Maybe just a simple way of saying it is to put to rights all that is wrong. To fix what is broken. To be fair and demonstrate true justice. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we have become the righteousness of God in Christ to the world around us. What that means is we are the one people on the earth because we believe and celebrate and worship the one true living God. We are the one group of people on the earth that does what's right. In the way we treat each other, in the way we treat creation, I've mentioned that in the spring, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. How we treat creation is very important because that's part of our theology. 
And so living right, living out a righteous life, living as a righteous people, means that we do what's right. If the world can't look at Dillon, if Summit County can't look at Dillon Community Church and see an example of people that are being fair and doing it right and repairing what is broken, back to redemption, well, where can they look? The government? I applaud our government and our country for having a desire to do what's right. I want you to hear me that. I don't always agree with the methodology or the strategy. Um, but I agree with the desire to do what's right. I don't really know what to think of Obamacare, but I certainly agree with the desire that we provide for the people that are less fortunate. That's, that's part of my heartbeat. But they can't do it. That's where we stand out, to be honest with you, as a church, as Christians. Because we have been redeemed, we know what it's like to be redeemed. Because we have experienced God's grace in our lives, we know what it's like to demonstrate God's grace to those who haven't yet seen it. We can do what's right. We can fix what is broken within our own little world here. So we're going to live out holiness and righteousness before the Messiah all of our days. That's what we'll do as a church. Well, then he goes on and says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. People have to be prepared to come to know the Lord. By the way, that's the role of the Holy Spirit. Our job is not to persuade people. Our job is to live our lives out and proclaim the gospel, the good news. You know what the good news is? It does include Christ died on the cross for your sins, but it's far bigger than that. The good news is God has done this rescue operation, and he has triumphed, and he has won. It's all that happens in God's plan. That's the good news. We live within the context of that good news, don't we? And that's the message we proclaim. And so the Holy Spirit is going ahead of you. When you have a chance to visit with your neighbor who doesn't yet know Christ, uh, a friend maybe, somebody at the hospital, somebody in an airplane, wherever God puts you, when you have the opportunity to be there, you can be confident of several things. Number one, God loves that person far more than you do. Okay? Number two, God has already been at work in their life. They just don't recognize it. That's why you're sitting there. So don't be afraid. God has already gone ahead of time to prepare the way. And this is the message of the Messiah. John the Baptist came to prepare the hearts of these people for the coming of the Messiah. And that's what we're doing with you at Advent, to prepare you for the coming King, Christmas. Let's look at this last one, the rising sun from heaven, verses 78 and 79. It's a reference to the power of God and a salvation that's far greater than the enemies. He talked about being rescued from our enemies, but then he moves on and says some other things. He says that it's because of God's tender mercies. Look at the language there. Um, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. This is the basis, the reason for it. I recognize that many of you have experienced brokenness that is pretty deep and painful. And I also understand that some of you have not yet seen the merciful side of God. It's not because it's not there. It is there. Mark and I, all week long, we meet with people that that have just wild journeys. And uh, part of our journey is to help people grasp what God's mercy looks like. Because he is a merciful God. 
He very much is. And if you're, if you're stuck in that place of deep pain, come see us. If you don't feel comfortable with us, come see one of the elders. Come see somebody here that you trust. Because God is a, a God of great, incredible, tender mercies. But then look what it says. By which this rising, shine, so rising sun will come to us from heaven and shine on those living in darkness. So he shines on those in darkness. He enlightens. He brings truth. That's why I said when you're sitting with a friend or a neighbor who doesn't yet know Christ, God is already at work in their life. That's why you're there. And he loves them more than you do. And you are part of that journey to help them turn the light bulb on, if you will. Grasp the truth of who the true God is in this broken world. Then it says, um, and in the shadow of death, he shines on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. He leads us away from death to life. That's the very heart of Christianity, isn't it? We come alive. That was the message in Ephesians. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and he brought us alive together with Christ. So he's telling them this is what's happening. And finally, he guides our feet into the path of peace. He leads us to peace. So how is this a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham? Um, I believe it argues that for reconciliation between the Jews and the Gentiles. And here's why I say that. The concept of people living in the darkness is consistently a metaphor for the uh, Gentiles. I'm going to read a passage out of Isaiah 49. So when you see that language, people living in darkness, the Jews, uh, the Jews had the word of God, they had the prophets, they had the message, the light had shone within them, and they were to be a light to the surrounding nations. The surrounding nations are conceived of as a people living in darkness. I'm going to read Isaiah 49, starting in verse 6. Um, this is God speaking. Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, to bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. There it is. There's the language. Speaking to the nation, I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The nation overall did not fulfill this, but Jesus Christ is a Jew. He did. That's Paul's argument. And Paul said, in just your case, you're not convinced. Paul said, I also am a Jew. So the New Testament is full of these Jewish people that actually fulfilled this promise. But it starts with Christ to bring a light to the Gentiles. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel. To him who is despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up. Princes, on the other hand, will see you and bow down. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. This is the character of God. I will help you. I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people. You see this language being repeated? that Zechariah talked about, God is a covenant-keeping God. He fulfills his promise. As the New Testament says, though we are faithless, he remains faithful. To restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances, he, to, the, to say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. This is a reference back to the Gentiles, to become a light to the Gentiles. So here, at the beginning of the prophecy, he has come to his people, verse 68, and redeemed them. And at the end of his prophecy, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of peace to guide our feet, I mean, shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. 
Remember the peace that appeared in Ephesians? Christ broke down the barrier to the dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles, and he established peace. Peace is the absence of hostility. Ephesians 4, be diligent to preserve the unity through the bond of peace. Christ, blessed are the peacemakers. Peace is why Christ came. To establish peace. But the peace starts with eternal life. It starts with belief. It starts with faith. It starts with conversion. It starts with saying, I believe in Jesus. I believe in what he did. That's the beginning right here. And then once we establish that, then we begin to practice within our congregation what does it mean to live in peace. Is there any greater hope than this? That he would come and redeem us and not just save us, but redeem our entire life? That he would redeem our church and that he would use us as instruments to redeem Summit County? Is there any greater hope than this? This is the message of Christmas. This is why Jesus came. I mentioned that we prepare, we use Advent to prepare you for the coming Lord, Emmanuel, God with us. So what are you doing as individuals and in your families to prepare for the coming King? We have the honor, the glory, the privilege of seeing these two comings of Christ back to back. We're anticipating his coming at Christmas. We look forward to it. And right behind it, we live in the very real anticipation. We should that he's coming back. Are you ready for him if he comes back? If you knew that Christ was coming back in one month from today, we knew with certainty he was coming back, what would you do different? How would your life be different? Think about the words that Jesus talked about. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Think about what Peter said. Be alert. Think about what Paul said. Be sober. Be awake. He is coming back. So the period of anticipation for Advent is to remind you that he's coming. And he's coming again. That's what Advent is all about. I'm going to invite the ushers to come. And, and uh, Barry, I'd like you to come. And, uh, Barry, thank you for leading us in wonderful music. It's just great having you here. And as the ushers come to take the offering, um, I'll never get tired of saying it. I hope you never get tired of hearing it. Uh, I'll say it every week, week after week, that we just love you. We're grateful for you. And uh, whatever God has put on your heart to give, uh, we're thankful. We're a grateful church. God continues to meet our needs through you. We can't say thank you enough. And, uh, and I hope that on your side of it, my prayer is that you, I know I feel the blessing of giving, that you feel the blessing of giving. We were made to be generous, weren't we? We were made to reflect our love out, to love people around us. We were made to help people that need to be helped, to reach out to them. This is one of the ways that we do it. So let me pray. Father, as we receive these, these gifts and these offerings that these people have brought, Lord, I, I have great confidence that you've already put on their hearts what you want them to give. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to give in a way that makes them laugh and is cheerful in a way that makes you have twinkle in your eyes. And Lord, uh, our commitment to you remains the same. We promise to use it to bring glory to your name, to reflect your name well to a world around us that so desperately needs what we have to offer, deep love, genuine love. Thank you for sending your son. Thanks for blessing us as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.
going to invite the, uh, those serving communion and those praying to come on up. We've looked at communion from a variety of aspects over the last several months. Uh, it's captured by the idea of proclaiming the death of the Lord. But the death of the Lord includes all the things we've talked about. The coming of Jesus at Christmas. The uh, ascension of Jesus back into heaven. All of those things. And communion itself is an act of preparation. Yes, it does remind us of what God does, and we proclaim his death, but it prepares us week by week to live our lives as believers should live our lives. In the Corinthian epistles, when, when Paul talked about um, the communion there, they were abusing the Lord's Supper. That's the whole context for his teaching, is that they were hurting each other. They were treating each other inappropriately. And, and, and the poor that came later didn't have any food to share within communion element to help out, to participate. And he says in, in 1 Corinthians 10, we usually read the 1 Corinthians 11 passage, but 1 Corinthians 10, isn't the cup or isn't the bread a sharing in the uh, death of Christ? And isn't the cup a sharing in the atonement? Participation? It uses language of participation. This is a chance where we get to come together as a congregation once a week and share something so wonderful together. Again, the story of Christmas. It's preparatory in that it helps, hopefully, my prayer, recalibrate for the week. Because it's, it's a hard life. I know it is. Even though we have lots of, lots of good things here in Summit County, there's still a lot of struggles. So my prayer is that this prepares you for this week to love the people that come across your path, to care for them well. Paul said on the night that Jesus betrayed, he took the bread, and he said this bread um, represents the body of Christ.